You're listening to The Weekend Take, and now your host, Sean Schaefer. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to The Weekend Take. I'm your host, Sean Schaefer, here for this second part of our two-part episode, sitting down to talk with actor, writer, and director Billy Kay. Billy, how are you doing? Uh, I'm hanging in there, Sean. How about you? How are you doing? Doing all right. It's a pleasure to have you on the show. I'm glad we got past our uh, technical funk when we were trying to get on here, but we got to figure it out. Two heads are better than one in that case. That's right, and I think it's only fair to tell your audience that you know you are popping my podcast cherry right now. <laughs> well, I'm sure it's uh, valuable information for them to know. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think it is. Earlier, we were talking about your time on Guiding Light, and you're you're still a teenager at this point. You, you've you've got to be doing. Are you like just not? in school on those days or you have a tutor on on set with you like how does that how does that work for for somebody still of the school going age pursuing acting yeah good question the, the soap opera didn't require an on-set tutor uh before sag and after merge you know after was a sec a separate union uh the actors federation of television and radio artists so if you did uh certain commercials uh soap operas and voiceovers you'd be going through after and after didn't dictate at that time that uh in, in the state of New York that somebody did. But if I went to California, different story, that's mandatory. So that's how it was for me. So these were just, just absentee days from, from class then while you were working on Guiding Light? Uh, oh, yeah, and, and auditioning. So uh, I'd come home and I'd have to do my homework and then have to prepare my auditions for, for the day. So I had double the homework. I mean, it sounds like a, a hell of a course load for, for anybody, let alone somebody who's a teenager. It became heavier as as my career advanced. You know, after LIE, it became nearly impossible to even think about school. I mean, I just was bombarded by that. So, you know, I could place the blame on it or or it's just a fact of the matter that, you know, school just was pretty much out the window as soon as my phone was ringing off the hook. You, you make LIE, it comes out, you go out to Sundance for all the screenings. Get nominated for the film for an Independent Spirit Award for Best Supporting Actor against Don Cheadle, John C. Riley, and Garrett Morris. And uh, Steve Buscemi took the award home that year. It's a hell of a group of people to be in the company of. Oh, yeah. And and back then, you know, Don Cheadle and, uh, you know, and some of their other careers weren't quite as blossomed yet. But now everyone hears those names. Everyone knows who the hell they are. They're like, oh, geez. You know, back then they were still up and coming. You leave Sundance with entirely new representation, basically. Yep. It's after this experience that you decide to make a make a go of it and, and move out to L.A.? Yeah. Um, my... New manager at that time was in LA and it just made no sense for me to be in New York because the amount of calls that I was being called on were 85% LA local work. So I think to kind of fortify your point that LIE was a real turning point for you then as an actor in your career. Not, not only as an actor, it changed my entire life. So now you're, you're, a, you're a 16 year old young man in Los Angeles. Yes, sir. You're auditioning regularly. So much so that you have to turn down things. Yeah. And you say you're not a man of who lives with, with regrets. Was there anything that, that you said no to or that looking back retroactively? You... Oh, yeah. There, there, there are times when I was in L.A. and, and being crazy and, and, you know, I'll give myself a break. I'll say I was growing up and <laughs> I, I made some poor decisions, you know, when it could have came to some very big opportunities I had. And there were times where I should have prepared my auditions more and uh there have been times even later on uh than the time we're speaking now where where i had made mistakes that i regret and 
have fucked up on, on sets and I've, you don't, you don't learn unless you fuck up. And I've done my fair share of fucking up over my 35 years in the business. And I mean, here we are, we were, you and I are talking right now. We're only halfway to that point. You know, I said you're, you're 16 years old in, in Los Angeles and I'm assuming your mom at this point, she's staying back on Long Island. You're, you're completely on your own now yep. out in, in Los Angeles. No family out there. No, no, nothing. Just me and, and the friends that I made. Is that terrifying for you as a 16 year old on your own and across the country from home? It, it was half terrifying, half exciting. Yeah. But certainly half terrifying. Always. Was there ever a point in this process where you were like, uh, maybe I should pack this up and head home? Well, there was. And that's when I moved back to New York. Uh, after going through a rough spell professionally and uh, romantically, I was in a relationship that you know I thought was going to pan out to be something you know, serious. And it didn't work out. And I just was at a low point in my life and I needed to uh, go home. And L.A. was kicking the shit out of me, as it does most people who, who go there. You're more so now today than then, I'm sure. Yeah. So during your time in L.A., what were you finding yourself mainly doing? Was it commercial work? Was it uh, was it like guest spots on TV? Like what were you up to while you were in L.A.? Mostly guest spots and indie features. Okay. Any in particular stand out that you, that you can recall or? Oh, sure. My, my favorite experience of any guest spot I did in L.A. was when I did uh, a great episode of CSI Miami. <laughs> and I'm, I, I remember that one very fondly. And I played this very weird, geeky role, like very charactery opposite of what I would normally get cast as. And uh, I just remember nailing that audition. The casting director was uh, actually from my hometown in Huntington. And I left a great impression on her. And I played this super quirky character who was a wealthy kid. Who, whose family had died and he's he spent all his inheritance on collecting actual crime scene artifacts like weapons used in famous crime scenes and uh working with uh, david caruso was kind of a trip i can imagine <laughs> let's just say his he needed another trailer uh to keep to keep his ego in besides his full star wagon he kept on the lot <laughs> let's just put it that way <laughs> uh my character comes to an untimely end but before then, I have a very fond memory. I'm forgetting the name. Oh, Jesus. Uh, the name of the actor who uh, I played a, across from. He was in uh, Empire Records, the guy who was a detective on the show for a while. His name is Rory, I think. Yeah, I'm trying to, like, it's escaping me right now, yeah. Yeah, but um, it, it'll come to me, like, uh, five hours from now. He was a big fan of mine, and I remember being on set, having some time to kill, and I had my tap shoes with me. I'm also a tap dancer since I was two years old. And in L.A., I always had my tap shoes with me. And I remember being on the lot, <laughs> tap dancing on an Apple box outside my trailer, and I blew the, the regular on the show away, and he, and he was really taken by me. And he actually went to the writers of the show, and asked them to not kill my character for me. I thought it was the coolest thing anyone ever did for me as an actor. And unfortunately, I still had to kill myself with Lizzie Borden's axe to my head, suicide. Jeez. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's one thing It's one thing to pull a trigger on yourself, but you took an axe to your own head, your character, huh? Lizzie Borden's axe. <laughs> wow, okay. I stole it right from Christina Ricci. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> but I'll never forget laying on set in the soundstage in my... Uh, apartment and I'm laying in this congealed pool of blood with the axe in my head and all my special effects makeup on. And it, it was a very uncomfortable scene. And I'll never forget having to lay there and stay still. And David Caruso walks in and does his sunglasses routine. 
And he, he comes in and he's like halfway through the first take and he's like, oh, I fucked that one up. Let's go back again. He would call cut on the director like four times. And I just remember looking at the, the makeup and the props master looking at me. I'm like, are you f-? laying in my blood going, are you fucking kidding me with this guy? Are you fucking kidding me? <laughs> it's like, I'm dying. I'm dying here. And here in my own fucking blood, it was the most uncomfortable, wet shithole I'm sitting in. I'm like, this fucking diva. Oh, man. Uh, the episode came out great, and it was one of my favorite guest spots I ever did. It's on Netflix. I think CSI Miami's on there. I'll have to check that one out. Yeah, it's a good one. Well, I'm sure you made some great connections in, in Los Angeles. Is there still anybody that you met or worked with in, in LA that you still stay in contact with? Um, yeah, look, uh, some some of them maybe not as much as I wish I would have. And, of course, there's always time to amend that. But I saw Paul Dano last year for the first time in a while. Uh, I saw him backstage and Ethan Hawke. He did this uh, Broadway revival of the show True West, Sam, Sam Shepard play. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was great. It was great to see him again. I, and I think uh, he just got casted as the, uh, as the, as the Riddler, if I'm, if I'm correct. Yeah, he's, he's supposed to be playing uh, the Riddler in the upcoming Batman film with Robert Pattinson and, uh, and Colin Farrell as the Penguin, which is an interesting choice. Oh, oh dude. Well, I can't wait to see it. <laughs> it's going to be it'll, – it'll be cool no matter what. But yeah, no, I still I still talk to Paul every. I try to stay in contact with him and my friend Kelly Garner, who has quite a nice acting career going for her now. You know, she was in The Aviator with uh, Scorsese and uh, amongst many other things. In the last Lifetime film of The Secret Lives of Marilyn Monroe, she played Marilyn Monroe. Did a killer job with Susan Sarandon playing her mother. Did some amazing work. Kelly's a good friend of mine. I still stay in contact with her a lot. Uh, my friend Shiloh Fernandez, who I met when I first moved out to L.A. He's, his career is beginning to blossom. It's my homeboy. Definitely a shout out to my friend, Brendan Gabriel Murphy, who I met on the set of LIE, who was a production assistant on LIE, who is now a very kick-ass director, does commercial spots and features. And- I mean, it sounds like in, in your travels, you've made you know, a lot of great connections with with people. And so one thing I wanted to kind of touch on, because you, you mentioned it earlier. So prior to, you know, at this point, you're 16, you're in LA, you, you were doing you were back on the East Coast. You're doing work there, but you did mention that you were working in in theater as well on the stage. Do you have a preference to stage versus the screen? I did musicals. I never I never really got on Broadway. I had my equity card, and I worked with some touring companies, and I did a lot of pretty big musical productions. It was some of the the greatest training of my life. You know, working on the stage versus being on set taught me a lot about being present. I always tell people who ask me about being an actor, I'm like, what's the most important thing to do when you're on set? I said, well, the actor's job, or certainly the lead actor's job more than any, is to be the most present person on that set. Being a theatrical actor teaches you how to be present more than than anything, I have to say. I prefer to do film. I would love to get involved in some plays again when I when I start deciding to get back in the acting end of it, you know, because I'm in my directorial writer phase of my career right now. But uh, I, I have plans to to get back in front of the camera and on stage, but they both have such valuable things to teach every actor. And I, I I would recommend that anybody who takes a career in this business seriously should dabble in both because I was raised to be what my mom called the triple threat. You know, you gotta be able to sing, dance and act. uh, And my mom threw me in dance class at two and (laughs) was already acting full time and singing came on a little bit later, but you know, I I became a, a pretty, proficient musician later in life so they're all very important and i to say a favorite eh, film you're listening to the weekend take 
Visit our Patreon page to become a patron of The Weekend Take, and for as little as $1, you'll receive exclusive content and perks. Was there ever a time where one conflicted with the other? Because I remember at one point you and I, I think while we were working on Swipes, we were filming at uh, at this theater, and you mentioned that uh, you were a much younger man, and uh, you're, I think you were still a kid, and you were in a play and you had a, either a callback or you were filming a, a commercial that conflicted with, I think, a rehearsal. Oh, God. Yeah, you remember that story. Very good memory. Um, and this is true. Uh, the very guy who we used for that location for the movie theater, the theater was in a different location than, than we were at at the time. But I was doing a production of uh, Carousel, the musical, and I got booked on an AT&T commercial, which actually, very ironically, I was working at the Cap Center and I met Jamie Lynn Sigler there, and we worked there together. She was in the first musical I ever did. And for those who don't know, Jamie Lynn Sigler is Tony Soprano's daughter in The Sopranos. And uh, so she she was working there. And then this is a couple of years later when I had the carousel and, and the AT&T commercial, and I met Robert Eiler was in the AT&T commercial with me. Talk about a small world. The guy who later went on to be her brother in The Sopranos. I mean, they, they had not even met yet. Kind of funny. So I go to shoot this, this commercial in Jersey. My mother and I came into traffic on the way back. My mom called the, the theater and said, you know, we're running late. You know, we'll get there as soon as we can. And I came back and the director pulled me aside after the rehearsal and, and fired me from the show and said, you know, you think you're going to do both? You can be, uh, you can be on, uh, on TV and movies and do theater. You have to be committed. And he made me cry and fired me and, and really, you know, fucked me up as a little kid for that, for that moment of time. How old were you at this time? Uh, I was probably like 11. Man. Yeah. <laughs> Heavy shit for an 11-year-old. Yeah. I mean, I'm 36. I think if someone fired me under those circumstances, I'd be upset. Right. <laughs> uh, yeah. And I, I'll never forget it. And But it was one of those moments that I'm very, uh, in hindsight, I'm very happy that it happened because it inspired the hell out of me to work in other theaters. And, and, I, and I upgraded to like the biggest uh, theater houses on Long Island after that. And I, and I got booked in each one of them. So his loss. <laughs> yeah. That's how you got to see it. That's how you got to move through it is to be it's their loss. So kind of jumping back in now. So you're out of L.A. at 16. How long were you in L.A. before deciding to come back east? Uh, like I said, like 2002, I, I got there and I, and I came back in uh, 2008. OK, so you're out there for about six years. So so you're about 22 now, right? Moving back to New York. Yep. You've, you've come back to New York. You're 22. Do you have to change your representation again because everybody's everybody's west coast or yeah i kept i kept the same man i had a manager that was in la i uh found a new agent when i when i came back to new york you come back to new york where uh i'm sure a lot of the same casting directors are are still working yes they are i mean that's going to be a bit comforting for you as an actor to at least still know the people now granted you're in a different age bracket now so they have to see you differently I imagine they have to see you as a, a young man in his early 20s as opposed to that fresh-faced, you know, 14 to 16-year-old kid. So you get back to New York. What are you finding yourself doing at that point? Is there a bit of a reestablishing yourself or are you able to kind of just reconnect with, with those casting directors? Well, I kind of made a choice when I came back to uh, put acting second to music. I had a, I had a real big desire to want to excel as a musician when I came back from uh, LA because I, I was under the tutelage of some very talented musicians I met out there. 
I wanted to kind of get away from the Hollywood thing for a while, but I was still going on auditions and I wasn't booking as much sporadic work here and there. And I, I kind of devoted myself to, to being in some bands for a while. And I kind of spent almost uh, eight years working in music more than in acting. So that was the step after that. Okay. During this, I mean, I, I'm sure just like with everything else, uh, mom is always super supportive of whatever it is you're deciding to do, whether it's acting or, or music or. Oh yeah. And you know, LA, LA fucked me up. There's no doubt about it. And let me tell you, making that transition from being a, a young child, uh, up and coming star to being an adult working actor is, is probably uh, the single hardest transition anyone could make in the business. You're better off, you know, jumping in it for the first time in your twenties than, you know, having to reinvent yourself when you've already been something, you know, doing it the way you did. I mean, it, it had to force you to, to grow up much sooner than you probably would have preferred. I imagine. Yeah. I, I think I, I've been an old man before my time, even when I was young. I mean, I was just taught to be a professional and you know, that's, you know, what you learn when you're young stays with you for life. Those things you know, don't go away easily. Does any part of you wish you were able to do more of the traditional kind of childhood things or were you just knew that this is what you were put here to do? And so that was, that was fine. No, I'm constantly going through existential crises, crises, I guess you could call it. <laughs> so I, I don't think I've ever had an answer to that question. Okay. Yeah. I don't, I don't, I don't feel like I was put to do anything. I, I know that I have a gift for, for the creative arts, you know, and, uh, if I am a tool for anything, it's, 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 I've learned that I could do any creative thing pretty well and on a high level. And, uh, I think it's both a gift and a curse, you know, being, being creative is, uh, it's hard. <laughs> You're creative and, and talented across, you know, a wide spectrum of creative arts. I mean, we've already discussed uh, acting obviously and, and music and dance and you're a painter as well. I've seen many of your works at the house. Yep. Got to wear many hats. You're going through this period where you put acting second to music and you're giving music its its go, you know, still auditioning here and there and still uh, booking things. And then at some point shortly before you and I meet, you decide that writing is the next creative art that you'd like to, to tackle, is it not? Yeah, yeah. I've been writing my, my whole life, not publishing anything, but been an avid note taker and poetry writer, just something that, that follows you, you know, you got to get it out of you somehow. But when, when I, uh, about five years ago, you know, a year before we met, I decided to, uh, you know, take a hiatus from acting altogether. It just came to the point where I was going into auditions smelling desperate and desperation stinks to casting directors. And that's not something they want to smell when you walk in the room. And I was experienced enough to know that I was having a hard time, you know, living up to the prior expectations of my career. And, uh, I, I had to walk away and I said, you know, I, I can't walk away from the business altogether, but I knew for my own health and for my own mental well-being that I needed to step away from the auditioning process for, for a while. And uh, I, I don't regret that either. It's been, you know, it's been nice not having to put myself on the line like that, but I'd be a liar if I didn't say there isn't another side that I, that I miss it terribly. It's like a drug. And it's also a lot of what you've known your entire life. I mean, before you could even remember. It's the... Uh, the fabric of my identity. And that's why, you know, still trying to figure out who I am after, after having that identity assigned to me. And I kind of looked inside and said, uh, I think I have a little bit more to offer than just being an actor. And, and, I, and I still believe that to be true today. And so you set forth, you decided to, to write, but now to make something happen. And, and you sat down and, and we're coming up on, uh, on the idea 
dawning of, of swiped and, and writing swiped. So for the listeners, what was the impetus to write swiped? And if you had to give the, the elevator pitch to what swiped is, because it's hopefully it should be uh, coming soon based on you and I's uh, discussions off the air. But what was the impetus for, for swipe and, and what is swiped? Well, swiped is going to be my directorial debut. It's a short film. It's a what I believe we'd call in the industry an art house movie. It's, uh, it's definitely not your standard <laughs> commercial kind of film. It really all started when uh, I met my partner on the film, uh, the executive producer, co-writer, uh, Lauren Torelli. We had met and uh, became friends, and we both had expressed to each other our desire to, uh, to get behind the camera because she was also uh, has a lifelong history of being an actor, but more in the theater and me more in film. Lauren and I had actually crossed paths uh, when I was doing musical theater a long, long time ago, and, and we realized that later on in life. So once again, the industry and every aspect is so small, you can't help but run into people 10 years, 20 years later. It doesn't matter. You're going you're to run into the same people. And, and Lauren and I hit it off, and if I remember correctly, just one day we were shooting the shit, and, and we started seriously talking about shooting something. And she's like, do you want to shoot something? She's like, I'm like, yeah, I want to shoot something. Like, what do you want to do? And that's how it all begins. And then I started digging in the mind and I wanted to make a, a surrealistic art film. And I kind of have a lot of qualms about modern society and, and our digital culture. I'm definitely more of a, a typewriter and, and landline kind of guy. And, and in this age, it just puts me further and further away from the, the, the apparent connectivity of our, our digital age. I, I wanted to write something really weird that was going to basically put a different spin on how dating apps work today, like Tinder and Grindr and, and eHarmony, whatever the, whatever the fuck they are, and how these, these sites are apparently replacing our, our ability to mate and to, and to select people that we like and to even, for that sake, have a conversation. And that's when Lauren and I thought to make the film uh, a silent film. Uh, I, I remember a couple of years before then, you know, that film, The Artist, black and white silent film that won the Oscar came out. And I was, I was taken back by that film and I loved it. And I thought to myself, I was like, why don't we make a silent film for the digital age, except it's only silent in terms of dialogue and not in terms of uh, sound design and score. And that was kind of the, the seed that, that started. Lauren and I took us a couple weeks to write it. I think we only did three drafts of, of the script and then we were happy with it. And uh, then we began pre-production and started scouting the crew, and that's where we found you. I think I think you like the script, and that's what made you call us back. <laughs> yeah, I definitely enjoyed the script, and I couldn't have been happier to be a part of it. I feel very excited for its release when the time comes, because despite the time that's passed since the production of it, I think not only does the message of the film still ring true, it perhaps does so even more than when we set out to make it because as a society, we are just becoming more and more uh, disconnected. You know, social media is meant to bring us together, but it don't. And it's done more to divide us. So all these things that were meant to bring us closer are pushing people further away, even if they're in the same room. I mean, I can't tell you how many times I go into a, a place or even just on set. It's like the moment someone calls cut and moving on. It's almost like a reflex yeah, it is a reflex. That phone in hand, and they're checking Facebook or Twitter or email or Snapchat or any 
number of things. And you tell me how, how many more fucking platforms can you can, can we have to check messages on and still have enough time to you know shit shower and shave for the day? You know, like I, I don't even know. <laughs> I, I don't know. Yeah, exactly. So swipe comes about. You and I uh, meet. You know, I meet you know Lauren as well. We go into production on swipe. We shot. Uh, was it, was it four days? Five days. We shoot five days. We have a great crew, which I, I'd love to share the story about how the crew came together, if you don't mind. Sure. And once again, about this digital thing and what you just said makes it so pertinent about the phones coming out right away. When we were putting together uh, the list on New York City, New York, NYC film crews and putting out the, the word, and we had a list of, of, of a whole bunch of candidates and the ones that Lauren and I selected and thought were good enough to, to be a part of the team. I helped her uh, construct a little letter and I said, please, at the end of the letter, say, you you know, you have been selected as a potential member of the crew, but you will not be hired until you speak with the director directly. No texts, no emails, verbal phone call only. And about 60% of all those candidates dropped off the map. <laughs> <laughs> and what I was left with was our crew. Besides you, you were a separate uh, hunt, obviously, but um, but for the crew, it was incredible, and it was so great. And they were all young kids, and every single member of that crew busted their ass like they were getting paid the big money. I was very open with them, and Lauren was very open with them about you know the money. But we were very hospitable in terms of putting people up and making sure they were fed and, and giving all the goodies of life. But I had the choice to make the film a union film or a non-union film. And I chose to, to do a non-union film because I think uh, I thought it would be a lot easier to get people to sign off for their passion and not for their career. And, and, and it worked out. And I'm proud to say a lot of the people, a lot of the people from the crew uh, since then have gone on to have some, some nice careers. I know uh, Karan Starling is, was working for Netflix last I heard. Yep. Last I saw on social media of course was that that was what he was up to yeah and and karan he had he hadn't worked on anything in the business before he was a a dance teacher so many of these kids came up to me throughout the course of the production and and told me thanks to us and thanks to you too sean i mean because of your professionalism and and talent a lot lot of them had a desire to be in the business and that, that touched me more than anything was to incite the passion in some some new folks you're listening to the weekend take Visit our Patreon page to become a patron of The Weekend Take, and for as little as $1, you'll receive exclusive content and perks. One of the things that I wanted to touch upon, so now we're, we're doing Swiped. This is your directorial debut. And as a lifelong working actor, how does that experience help you now as a director stepping behind the camera? Because I always, I always recommend to directors when they're getting into the business to take acting classes because there's no better way to be able to communicate with your, with your actors on set than if you know the processes that they have to go through and the, and the methods that they use. So for you as a, as a lifelong actor now, how did that help you as a director? Oh, I think being an actor director can either help you or, you know, be a big kick in the ass. But uh, I'm lucky that it helped me because growing up on a set like I did, like I wasn't the kid who went around and eavesdropped on other actors talking to their agents on the phone and things like that. I was more interested in between my takes and in, in between my setups working with the crew. I was always hanging out with the camera crew, always asking questions. So I, I've had a technically aware mind of how films are made for, for, for many years. 
So, I, you know, taking those two things into account, it really helped me. But what kicked me in the ass more than anything was casting. It was my first time being behind the table. And I think that really changed my perspective a whole lot. We had two calls for the, for the principal cast. We found the, t- the two guys that I wanted for the lead character um, for the second time round. And when I was in the room, along with, with Lauren and several other people, I-, I was convinced that this one kid was the guy by his performance in the room. And as we said before, Swiped as a silent film. So it wasn't about the dialogue. It was about the vibe and about the energy and about the acting. And being an actor, I think it kind of, I, I got bamboozled by another actor. because he came in the room and was extremely personable and put out a great vibe. And I was like, oh, I had the feeling. I'm like, I think this guy's it. And then the next character came through and I loved his performance too, but I was more torn by the vibe that the other guy gave me. And then when we came home and we watched the tapes, you know, we watched them with the sound on once and then we turned the sound off and I watched both of fast forwarded to when the, you know, the audition began And it was so crazy how I was so wrong about the other guy. And as soon as I turned the sound off and I watched my second choice, I knew he was the guy. Nothing could have prepared me for that experience except being cognizant and aware of of, of what was going on. And I thank my years of of being in the business for both screwing up my judgment and then helping me make the right choice in the end. (laughs) So it's kind of like that. Well, I mean, and that's another thing that didn't even cross my mind was for this film, you you now are – on the other side of that casting table in that process, how many people turned out to audition for you or did you specifically select people to come in? Oh yeah. We, we specifically selected people and pretty picky about who we chose. So I think we only had about like 10 or 12 choices for, for the lead. The second lead, uh, uh, Stephanie was Lauren's friend. And I, I met her uh, in a video chat and she talked to me over there and I casted her right away. She, there, there was no doubt about that. But when it came to the after effect of the casting, it taught me a lesson as an actor too, not, not only as a director. And I think it'll help me when I get back in front of the camera again too, because you can never realize how much an actor takes things personally against them in an audition. And they think that, you know, the director has something against them or their look and why didn't you want me this, 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 and that. And I realized by sitting behind the table that it has nothing to do with that at all. A director is like a parent who's trying to select a babysitter. You know, you, you want to make sure you choose someone that you trust wholeheartedly and have everything, you know, all your trust in before you put your kids in their care. You know, that that's what it is. And I'm very thankful that sitting behind the table taught me that I took a lot of things too personally through the years. And maybe that's one thing I would have liked to have changed. That's probably a, a pretty big takeaway. But what do you think your biggest takeaway as an actor was from the experience of Swiped by being the director, being the writer, and doing the casting, what well, was that? What do you think that was your biggest takeaway? The the entire experience. I mean, it's a lot different sitting in the pilot seat than in the co-pilot seat. An actor is a co-pilot, but the director is really the one throwing it down. You know, the actor has to put the trust in the director, and and I think I treated the actors like I would have wanted to have been treated, and I gave them the respect and patience with their performance to. So they could get something they wanted and, and, and were happy with. And then I could leave with something that I thought would make the film. I have no complaints. Uh, there's a couple things, I, maybe more than a couple things I look back on that I would have done different. But, you know, you got to jump in the water. You can't just put your toe in. You got you to gotta jump in. Literally. Right, Sean? We were in there for how long? Six hours? <laughs> for those listening, one of the scenes 
of Swiped involved a pool and some underwater cinematography, which was uh, a first for me. So, uh, yeah, you have to you have to jump in the water. <laughs> what are the three things that you're supposed to avoid uh, when doing a movie? Kids, animals, and water. <laughs> for continuity nightmare purposes yeah <laughs> so, uh, of course i had to choose being the one thing and th- th- there's a reason for that too because throughout my career a lot of the movies that i've done uh i've done water things where i've been you know drowned or capsized a sailboat and things like that so i just thought it it would be wouldn't be right if my first film wouldn't have one of these difficult things in it yeah i mean but hey at least you didn't put an axe in someone's head I, at least I, at least i didn't do that we wrapped production on the film, arduous process. We all got through it together. Definitely a, a camaraderie amongst uh, both the actors and the crew and everyone involved. And then you get to enter into a whole new world of post, of post-production. <laughs> and you learned myriad other things about the industry when getting into post. Post begins on, on Swiped. And I guess what was the biggest misconception that you think you had going into post that uh you found out in the process like well as an actor you know you think that the the extent of your post production is going in for an ADR session or two and then you're out but i learned i was wrong about that real quick <laughs> <laughs> for those who don't know ADR additional dialogue restoration you know i don't think i've ever well except for our movie cuz cuz there's no sound actually no i did do ADR for our film believe it or not but that you you can't get in a movie without having to fix something in the end it's it's pretty much impossible more than ADR uh i have to say uh we took we we bit off more than we could chew with terms of the concept and the 5 days as hard as they were you know were nothing compared to the hurdles that we had to overcome to take that film and bring it to the level to tell the story Lauren and I are both very methodical and very picky about what we like and what we thought would serve the film. And I think more than principal photography, which I loved every moment of and and, and is probably my favorite part of the process, but post taught me more as a director than 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 I ever was prepared for. And uh, I, I'm still learning to this day and uh, you have to have real respect for people in this business after you you take on the task of of, of trying to put together a quality film and do everything to a professional standard, which is very expensive and extremely time consuming. And you learned a lot in post also about the film and the story itself, because from the concept we had when we set out, the film has a significant different approach now from what we set out to shoot versus what you and I were discussing where the film currently stands. So like, uh, the storytelling method is uh, a little bit different. The visual aesthetic of it has has changed. So these are things that, as a director, um, you, you've learned in, in post-production throughout the process, I imagine, yes? Oh, yeah. I mean, I already knew this as an actor. You know, what you, when you go in with a script, uh, you're not always going to leave on, on film with what you, what you wanted. And then sometimes, even if you get what you wanted... Uh, it doesn't work out on paper like it does uh, in the edit. You know, the first step was was locking down the picture and the film went through about three semi-lock stages until like the fourth time we finally said, okay, this is it. And that took a long time just to get the picture right before we even stepped into visual effects, sound design or score. Yeah, and so now visually it has, I mean, I'm not going to disclose too much about it because we, you know, we are looking forward to releasing it, but... Now tell them something though. <laughs> the, the visual style of the film 
I feel uh, has taken a unique spin from what we set out to accomplish in production uh, from what, you know, you've told me and what, you know, you've, you've been able to, to show me leading up to this point in post. That was something that was kind of found completely in, in the edit. It, it feels. Oh yeah. The, the, the story revealed itself and being, like you said, I'm a painter too. And I love to paint. It's one of the things I do in my spare time and I teach painting as well. Same thing. You go out with a blank canvas and the painting begins and you think that you have the concept and then you just, you see things reveal themselves that you weren't prepared for. And, and that kept happening time and time again with the edits. And the story began to reveal itself to us and, and evolve before our, our eyes. And every time we brought it, uh, we brought it up to one level, we had to raise up the other side of production to, to match it. And then it's been this constant game of bringing everything to, to a, you know, a cohesive level. And uh, that's what's taken so long with limited funds and being an independent film as we are. And, and, and as much time as it's, it's taken so far, I'm still shocked and, and proud every time we discover something new. We spent a year just working on the score. You know, I worked with this amazing composer. His name is Irv Johnson. He was recommended to me by a good friend of mine and he lives in, in Denmark. He's originally from New York and uh, he married a Danish woman and he lives in Denmark. And uh, we worked, you know, for a year together just over the internet, you know, talking at five o'clock in the morning with our time difference. I'd wake up at five and talk to him. And as soon as we got into sound and, and music, that whole journey, like you said, it started all over again, where the, the film started to rewrite itself and things need to be changed. And such a lesson, man. I mean, anybody who, who wants to be a filmmaker feels like one when they're on set. But when they get into post, I'm sure that they'll question those feelings. You're listening to The Weekend Take. Visit our Patreon page to become a patron of The Weekend Take. And for as little as $1, you'll receive exclusive content and perks. Certainly a sense of irony doesn't escape us in that this film that kind of takes its own social commentary on the digital age would have so much of the digital age involved in its creation. Yeah. You know, you're working with Irv who's halfway across the world using digital means and, and everything else. And again, a budgetary thing is, you know, we, we captured digitally as opposed to, to film. Although I think if it was a undertaking in film, I think we, would have had a much uh, different experience altogether. Uh, yeah, maybe not positive. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah we, we, we would have ran out of film on day three. <laughs> yeah. Swipe is coming down the home stretch. It's nearing the finish line. It's in, yeah, it's in the final, the final bits of, of Carla Correction, which was the last part of the journey. We're not holding you to a date, but when do you think Swipe may be ready to be sent off into the world? Well, I think, I think we're a couple months away. And for a project that's taken this long, it just seems like a couple seconds. So <laughs> it's not going to be that much longer. So now we're we're pretty much up to the current time frame. And so it's time to kind of look ahead. So what is next for you as either a director, a writer, an actor, painter? Like what, what, uh, which of the many talents of Billy Kay does Billy Kay pursue next? The, the jack of all trades and the master of none. <laughs> when swipe is done uh i'm gonna move on into post-production for my second short film that i that i directed uh, which is called uh past tense uh, i shot that on location in utah for four days and uh, that film's sitting in the can and as soon as i'm done with this movie i am going to do some fundraising 
and uh, work on completing the second film. Do you foresee, because you, you kind of alluded to it, do you foresee uh, a return to in front of the camera for you any anytime soon? Absolutely. I, I really think that once these two short films that I've directed get out into the universe and you know, we play the, the film circuit and get ourselves into as many festivals and try to put as many laurels on top of our head as we can. I have several ideas already on paper of what I'd like to do for my next project. And I certainly think I'm going to put myself in it. And I'm sure for, for you, that's got to be a, a good way to, to, to scratch the itch. Cause I know that you miss it at times being in, in front of the camera. So this is a nice way to have a bit more control and have it on, on your terms, how you, Put yourself in front of cameras so that you know you don't have to run the, necessarily the risk of you know some of the experiences you had in in LA and otherwise. Yeah, I'm, I'm familiar enough with with the process that you know when I when I walked away not permanently temporarily as an actor, I think it was mainly to regain control of my career and why I'm doing this and and what I'm doing it for. And I've respected the people I've worked with so much over my life and. I've realized that I've, I've not that I don't respect actors, but I've had more respect for the people who make films happen than maybe for the acting side. And being a part of both, uh, I never for, foresaw when I was a kid would be something that I would so greatly desire. But but it's the truth. You know, um, after my experience being behind the camera and breaking down my prejudice of casting directors and the casting process, uh, I, I think I prepared myself to lay down my my next great performance. I guess a couple of fun questions for, for you as an actor. Is there a particular type of role that you like to play? Like, do you like to play? Like you mentioned CSI Miami, you were kind of like this geeky, the the rich kid or, you know, your character from LIE. Like, is there is there a particular type of role or genre that if you had your druthers, you would prefer to play in? Um, I, I always like to step away as far from myself as I can if I get the chance to as an actor. And I enjoy doing period pieces the most. So I really would like to get involved in, in, in something like that. I'd love to be in a huge budget period piece, you know, with, with the full on props and, and wardrobe and, and vintage vehicles and things of that nature. And I, I love period films and I'd love to star in one. Okay. Next little fun question. Is there, if you had your, your pick of directors living or dead, who would you love to, to act for? What director would you love to work with? John Houston's definitely one of them. Okay. Really would love to work with him. He, he's definitely one of the one of the most uh, badass directors that come to mind. Would have loved to have been able to work with Hitchcock. You know, uh, a lot of Hitchcock kind of vibes is where I was going with Swiped, trying to keep the mystery in the storyline. And, you know, Hitchcock was such a master of suspense. Uh, and I think Swiped has a little bit of suspense to leave for the audience at the end, too. I'd love to work with him. And modern directors, I'd love to work with Guy Ritchie. I love his work, and he seems like a fun guy to work with. Jeez. Well, pretty much anyone who would hire me, I guess. <laughs> Next, it was uh, in your, you're now 35 years in this industry. What is the single best piece of advice you have received, and, and, who, and who gave it to you? Tenacity wins over talent every time. Okay. And that was told to me by in varying versions by many people throughout my life. And the people who are the most wise and probably the most experienced have always said it. And it's the truth. Uh, I've been blessed with a lot of talents, but you know, uh, 
I've made a lot of mistakes and it, and it wasn't because of my talent that, that I screwed things up. It was because of, you know, lack of tenacity and that could go for any director, any actor. If, if you love it enough, you don't give up and you need to stop looking at the watch, stop looking at the calendar and just take it one day at a time. And just like anything else, if you, if you don't give up that day when it's done will come every, every flower and fruit blossoms in their time. And uh, I remind myself that all the time that uh, you just got to wait for your time to, to grow. Don't judge your, your rate of growth by someone else. Be yourself and honor that because that integrity is, well, integrity in general is, is lacking in show business. And I would, for one, love to be a voice of integrity in the future. I know you and I, when we were chatting prior to this recording, you had mentioned that you were trying your hand at being an author as well. You're, you're talking about possibly uh, writing an autobiography? Yep. I'd like to publish two things, one of which I have a, an unpublished copyright on already uh, for a compilation of poetry from over the years. I'm going to be trying to release that soon, but the title of that's going to be called uh, Orange Peels in the Ashtray, Volume 1. That's basically, well, at this point, like a thousand pages of, of poetry over the years that I'm going to edit down and just a basic, you know, compilation book. You know, no roses are red, violets are blue kind of shit, you know, talking about the nit and gritty of the real life. And secondly, like you said, I'm working on, on my novel. That's been something I took on more recently. And I think for anybody, it's the hardest thing to do is to dig into your life and try to put the timeline down and, and, and give yourself voice. But it's, it's teaching me more and more every day. But that'll be done too. No title for that one yet, but we'll see what happens. Anything else that... I may have missed or just kind of touched upon, but you wanted to, you know, discuss in a bit more detail or um, just because, you know, it's, it's a lot of time to cover and there's a lot of stuff that I, I don't know that I may not have thought to ask. So is there, is there anything that, that you personally would kind of want to take this time to, to discuss or say? Yeah. I want to thank everyone for, if they're sitting here for two hours, listening to all these ramblings of my brain and, and my, uh, my life. I appreciate that. And no, I don't really have any other questions. I think you're a, a brilliant host and have, uh, have touched upon many subjects that bring, bring up a lot of memories. And, uh, I hope maybe in the future we can touch upon some more in the future and cover some more ground. Thank you for the, for the compliment and more so thank you for coming on and, and talking with me today. Like, you know, it's one of the things where it is a, a very interesting story and, and from what you and I have talked about and during our time working on swiped and after just talking about just life experiences and, and whatnot and and everything that you've kind of seen and done, you know, enough to fill a couple lifetimes in, in just, you know, 35 years. So it's just been great being able to to sit down and chat with you about it. And uh, both of your works that you're, you're talking about, both the poetry and the kind of autobiography, both sound very exciting and interesting to me. I definitely want to give them a read when, when they're ready. You'll get a free copy, I promise. All right. <laughs> nice. If that's all, then yeah, I want to certainly thank you for for coming on and taking the time to to chat with me. Uh, it, it's been a pleasure, and thank you so much for giving me an opportunity to speak about my my life and the crazy shit I've seen along the way. I know it's counterintuitive to the theme of swiped, but if people out there on the internets and social medias wanted to learn more about you or, or check you out, is there a way they could do so? 
Sure they can. They can uh, check me out on my website, which is billyk.com, B-I-L-L-Y-K-A-Y.com. It's a website of my own construction, which is to say, you know, not, not that great, <laughs> but it's in the process of being, you know, put together. I got a lot of material that I need to digitally transfer still, but I have managed to put a lot of my early career work up there, a lot of the print work, a lot of pictures and links to uh, films that I've been in. And of course, you can go to imdb.com and type in Billy K and they'll help you out, see a pretty detailed version of what I got out there. And most of the television work that I've done is on Netflix, the episodic stuff. You can find it online. If you want to check it out, it's there. And uh, there's a, a section to contact me on the website. Feel free to drop me a line and hopefully speak to y'all soon. All right. And you can check out uh, the Weekend Take on social media as well. We're on Facebook at www.facebook.com backslash the Weekend Take. We are on Twitter as well at The Weekend Take. And be sure to check out our Patreon campaign at www.patreon.com backslash The Weekend Take, where for as little as $1 per month, you can become a patron of The Weekend Take, get exclusive access to extended cut episodes in case you want to hear more of the conversation that Billy and I had today or any of our previous guests. You also get early access to public release episodes and starting this season, some Patreon patron-exclusive episodes, and you get a free weekend take sticker to show us off to your friends. So, Also, there'll be other perks coming later this year as well. Otherwise, that about wraps it up for us this week on The Weekend Take. One more time, Billy, thank you so much for taking the time to, to talk with us. Thank you, Sean, and thank you uh, to everyone out there listening. Hope to blow up your eardrum again sometime. I, I hope so as well, and for the rest of the listeners listening right now, I want to thank you for tuning in and we'll catch you all next week. Take care. Bye. You've been listening to The Weekend Take. Be sure to subscribe on iTunes and Google Play and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Visit our Patreon page to become a patron of The Weekend Take. And for as little as $1, you'll receive exclusive content and perks. <laughs>